going to start off by summarizing Judges 1 to 5, just so that you get an idea of where this places us in our um, conquest of Canaan by the Israelites and what they're up to. My title for the talk is Settling the Land, because we've entered the land, we've subdued the land, and now we're going to settle in it. And so there's a, a key distinction, I feel, between you know, attacking and having a victory versus um, settling down and making home. And it's in that that we find ourselves this morning. So Judges 1 to 5, Joshua's dead, 110 years old, which is a good innings by anyone's standards. Um, Judah attacks and defeats the Canaanites and the Perizzites at Bezek, chasing Adonai Bezek. Uh, they caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. You might think that's a bit weird. And he responds with, having had his thumbs and toes removed, his big toes, he responds with, I have 70 kings under me with no thumbs or toes because I've removed them. It stops them holding a sword. Yeah, opposable thumbs, necessary for holding a sword. It stops them having stability and prowess in battle. So it's a way of saying, I've defeated you. You will never be a threat to me. It's a merciful thing because it's not killing them. Saying you remain a king in your place. You will never be a threat again. You have no thumbs or toes. He then went um, back with the Israelites and died in his place. They attacked and took Jerusalem, the Israelites did. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. Uh, more on that later. They didn't drive out the occupants of many places. The Benjamites didn't drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. The Jebusites stayed there. The Benjaminites said, okay, well, we're told that they attacked the city, put it to the sword and set it on fire but they didn't drive out the occupants of the inhabitants therein, and they then settled with them later. They took the hill country. They were unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had secret weapons. Iron chariots stopped them from being able to take out the people from the plains. Um, it says in, in the Bible, uh, in the book of Judges, to this day the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. And the note on that is it's really useful for, um, for placing this book in terms of when it was written. Because it says early on, this happened uh, in the time when Israel had no king. So it was obviously written during a time of monarchy, because it's looking back at a time when Israel had no king. But also to say the Jebusites lived in, this, lived in Jerusalem until this day. We know that during the time of King David, that was no longer the case. And so we get this window where we can place where this was written. And we're talking about a book today that is over 3,000 years old, just over 3,000 years old from today. And it's amazing how much I believe God wants to speak to us through this and through the whole word, his inspired word. The Benjaminites went and took Bethel. Uh, Manasseh did not drive out the people of ben, uh, Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo, uh, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land, is the reason given. Why didn't you drive them out? Uh, they're a bit persistent. The Canaanites said no. They didn't just get up and go. They were determined to live in that land. And it goes through this list of 
sort of failures to drive out the people. Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites in Giza. Zebulun didn't drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Naphalol. Asher didn't do it in Akko, Sidon, Ahlab, Akzib, or Helba, or Aphek, or Rehob, and all of these pronunciations are way off of the mark. I'm conscious of that fact. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, poor. Okay, Naphtali didn't drive out those in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. There's just a massive list of times when you know, God, God told these guys to go in, take the land, drive out all, and we'll look at some of the original commands, but there's this massive list at the beginning of Judges of they didn't drive out these people or these people or these people. The people remained there and they lived among them. And that's key for us. Chapter 2 says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. So the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. It says that the people served the Lord until Joshua and all of the elders who served with Joshua had passed away. It's like living memory. If there, was, if, there, if there was anyone with living memory of the, the priests, the, the elders and Joshua, then they would continue to serve the Lord. But as soon as that generation had passed away, they kind of forgot who they were and they forgot their God. A new generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And I'm going to continue pronounce that, to pronounce that Baals, B-A-A-L-S, okay? A, a group of gods. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. After all of these series of victories that we've heard about so far, all of a sudden God said, guys, I'm no longer with you in this battle. I'm against you. The hand of the Lord was against them. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of the groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. 
Let me go through some of these judges, these three judges that we have in this section of, of Scripture. Othniel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the Cush and Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim. That is the northwest Mesopotamia, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Nice. Ehud. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistine with an ox goad. What's an ox goad? A pointy stick for, for prodding oxes on their way. Yeah, not the yoke. That would be a blunt instrument, but a pointy stick. Struck down 600 Philistines with a pointy stick. He too saved Israel, so there should be Shamgar in there as well. Deborah. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Caesarea, the commander of his army, was based in um, this place. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, he and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. And then the land had peace for 40 years. And what I love is Judges chapter 5 is Deborah's song. The blokes don't sing. The blokes could really do with writing down a song so that we can get a rich sort of insight into the history. of. But they don't. It's Deborah who says, I'm leading Israel for the, long, for the time that I'm alive. This deserves a song, which is fantastic. I'm not going to sing it to you because there's no tune. So, so it would probably suit me quite well. Um, it's difficult. The Israelite conquest of Canaan is difficult. When you, when you look at it through the lens of Joshua 10, uh, which says, Joshua took Machadah. He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. He did to the king of Machadah as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel moved him on from Machadah to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel, Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it. Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved from Libna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and he attacked it. The Lord gave Lachish into Israel's hands and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Giza, had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. It sounds like the country is just strewn with corpses and with death and with blood and with how is God showing his mercy and love in this. It's difficult. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, the mountain slopes, Together with all their kings, he left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Gosh Goshen to Gibeon. 
All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Modern equivalent. This is, an, this is from this week. The Mail Online, so you probably can't trust everything that it says literally, is selling sites to Malta. I couldn't get rid of that advert to be able to show you the bit underneath, but it's, you know, it's there. The next bit, Liverpool 5, Roma 2, player ratings. Mohamed Salah destroys his former club as Kevin Strootman struggles to make an impact. Wouldn't you struggle to make an impact if your club had been destroyed? The point I'm making here is the language of utterly destroyed, total destruction until no one was left alive is likely to be the type of obliteration language that is common for war reports of that time. If you win a battle convincingly, then you have utterly destroyed and left no one standing who is able to breathe. Okay, And so I'm offering an interpretation of it which might help. The obliteration language in Joshua, for example, he left no survivor and utterly destroyed all who breathed, is clearly hyperbolic. Consider how, despite such language, the text of Joshua itself assumes Canaanites still inhabit the land. It says, For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. Joshua 9.12 utilizes the typical ancient Near Eastern literary conventions of warfare, of warfare from a man who is more intelligent than myself called Paul Coppen. The question is, how would there be anyone left to intermarry with if the utter destruction is to be taken literally. Also, the pace of warfare at that time means that as an army moves across, that there will be scouts and there will be warnings of their impending arrival. And so those cities who want to put up a fight will leave armies in those cities. Their inhabitants will get out of dodge whilst they still can, whilst the armies are on their way. And so leaving no one breathing is likely to be that you leave a city completely overwhelmed, that there is no one left in that city. And then when you move on to the next one, the inhabitants return. The inhabitants of the city left because they knew that they were going to lose that one, and then they returned. It's likely to be the case. And if there was a sweeping army, you know, coming across uh, the whole of Britain that, you know, invaded from, uh, let's say, from Wales, and they're coming across, not the Welsh, but, you know, they landed in Wales, whoever they are, and they were coming across, and, uh, and you just heard news report after news report of cities um, falling, you know, Cardiff and then Bristol, and they're coming to Gillingham next because of its importance and strategic significance as a place that you go through to get to other places. And so, you know, Gillingham's next on, on their route. Are you going to stand and fight, or are you going to leave? If you are going to stand and fight, and you lose that battle, then you have been utterly destroyed. If you're going to leave and wait for them to pass, there's nothing to prevent you from, you know, moving back in. And so both are correct the battle was overwhelmingly in the Israelites' favor because of God's power and, and you know, 
mighty hand in that battle. Blood was shed. We can't get away from, we can't just say, you know, the Israelites were the most amazing diplomatic peoples and they went in and had nice conversations with people and, and, you know, that was it. Blood was shed. But I, I believe that this interpretation of the, this is common for battle language of the time is one that we can uh, explain the fact that they were then warned not to intermarry with the survivors of the place where no one had been left with breath in them. Interesting. Um, and uh, Mohammed Salah did destroy his former club, which we're you know, significantly pleased with. Good. But unfortunately, because there were survivors, unfortunately, because they then settled amongst them and the judges, uh, the opening passage of judges with their, they didn't drive out the people from here or here or here or here and all these places and they just settled amongst them. They uh, went into towns and cities and said, right, we're here too. Because they did that, they forgot their local, pra- their, their practices. They forgot God. They turned from him and lost his protection. And that sin-confess cycle that the Israelites go through is the biggest recorded sin-confess cycle in all of history. A collective moving away from God, doing stuff that you know you shouldn't, saying sorry, coming back and being in right relationship with God for a period of time until you slip up and do it again. And it's kind of encouraging as rubbish people that we are you know, and we go through these small things to know that whatever we did here, the Israelites showed it on a scale that's never been repeated in history in terms of moving away from God and coming back to him. Whatever our sin-confessed struggles that we're, you know, we're warring against, they did it on a scale bigger than that. And I meant to say it later on, but I'll, I'll say it now. There's uh, in Romans 9, Paul talks about um, you know, warring against the, the war of flesh and, uh, and spirit and doing those things that he knows that he should not do. And that's true of all of us. Even though we are not sinners anymore, we're saints. We're saved by the grace of God. That's amazing. And I'm riffing off of freedom in Christ that we saw on Thursday. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we are not just sinners who, um, who are in the right club. We've been made righteous through what Jesus did. And we're now saints. Saints who get it wrong sometimes. That's much better than uh, sinners who get it right sometimes. Yeah? God has made us righteous. And we... Don't do right by that sometimes. Okay. The Israelites were commanded not to intermarry for fear of losing sight of God. They were to keep themselves pure. They failed. And then they worshipped the Baals. And so this original command of God to go into a place and leave no one there and do not intermarry with them was for their own protection. And you can see how when they didn't do that, it didn't work out very well for them. Had they utterly cleansed the place of the child-sacrificing Canaanites whose practices were just abhorrent, had they managed to cleanse that place of that evil, then they would have built up a nation whose practices would be enduring 
But they didn't. They were disobedient. And that led to ongoing, ongoing problems. So we can learn a lot from this. Here's what I've got as our three main points today. God requires that we remain pure in a world that is pulling us away from him. God requires that we we remain pure in a world that is pulling us away from him. Imagine the Israelites going into that place, knowing that there were evil practices in that place, having been told to rid that place of those evil practices and to remain pure. They had a challenge. We've got more of a challenge because we don't rid the place of evil practices. We have to live amongst it. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We're not called to become a commune style community, but we're called to live in and bless our community. Genesis 17, I'll get onto the other two in a sec, says, I will make you very fertile, which is a wonderful promise uh, for, of God for, to Abraham. I will produce nations from you and kings will come from you. I will set up my covenant with you and your descendants after you in every generation as an enduring covenant. I will be your God and your descendants God after you. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are immigrants, the whole land of Canaan as an enduring possession and I will be their God. And after Abraham's obedience with his son Isaac, there was a restating of that promise. Genesis 22 says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. I love that promise and we're called to live out that promise. Because of your obedience to God, you will be a blessing to those around you. So this call to isolate our practices from the cultural expectations, some big words, but wrap your head around it, to to make sure that you are not conforming to what the world expects of, of ordinary individuals, but what you know God expects of you, that in itself, being obedient to God, will enable you to be a blessing to those around you. But the Israelites, unfortunately, didn't love it, live up to it. They didn't uphold their end of the bargain. The original covenants had the proviso, walk with me and be trustworthy and I will be your God and I will bless you. Walk with me and be trustworthy. Walk with me and be trustworthy. And they time and again failed to do that. Colossians 3, let's get some New Testament perspective on this one. Colossians 3 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Think again of the first of the Ten Commandments and the first commandment that Jesus said is the most important, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To do these things is idolatry. It shows 
a lack of love for the Lord with everything that we are. It is idolatry, which is the biggest evil that, um, that we can commit against God, to put something else before him. Put to death, totally destroy, wipe out from before you all earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. James 1, and we've encountered this one, uh, I think last time I preached, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Ties in beautifully, doesn't it? With the put to death, therefore, in the context of what the Israelites went through, keep yourself from being polluted by the world by driving out the evil which would cause you to commit idolatry and turn yourself from God. These are personal applications of what the Israelites went through in that journey. And Matthew 5, of course, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's like the Abrahamic covenant, but with us. Drive out those things that will cause you to separate yourself from God. Drive them out. Live according to God's will for your life. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Be pure. Avoid idolatry. And blessed are those who, tr who, who do this. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not, in the, not the pure in deed, not the pure in list of do's and don'ts. The pure in heart who long to pursue his purity. For they will see God. And what more of a blessing can you have than that? So it, it does appear, doesn't it, that God really has this thing against idolatry. Yeah? States it quite a few times. I'm a jealous God. Have no other gods before me. Stop worshipping those gods. You've turned yourself towards those gods. Therefore, I'm no longer with you. I'm going to be against you in these battles. Please, could you just, you know, stop looking at other gods? Guys, guys. And then, you know, after a period of, of persecution, uh, someone in the Israelites goes, you know what? We should probably go back to God. And all the Israelites go, yeah, that's a good idea. And God says, you're back. Brilliant. Okay, let's get this relationship thing going again. And then they go, yeah, and then move. Oh, just, it's frustrating, isn't it? So God requires that we remain pure in a world that's pulling us away from him. God has revealed his will to us, his will for our lives. And I don't mean God's pure and perfect will in what color of socks you're going to be wearing today. I can't state this enough that, that God's will for your life is in his word. If you read through Jesus' teachings, then that guides, doesn't it, the flavor that your life has. It's like going to a restaurant on a daily basis and knowing their menu and knowing what nutritional advice is, knowing what it means to have a healthy diet, knowing what it means to have you know, enough fruit and veg each day and to, to cut down on saturated fats and things. And you are given all of this, this menu to choose from. And if you do, if you choose the, the, the rubbish stuff day in, day out, you know that you're 
flying in the face of what you should do to keep your body healthy. And God says, look, I've revealed my will for you. It's like good nutritional advice. It is, it is for you to um, avoid idolatry, to, um, to stay pure, to stay faithful to your, um, to your spouse. It's to, to not gossip. It's to avoid yeah, coarse talk. It's to settle disputes with your brother before you come to have communion. It's, there's so much good stuff in there in how to live good life. You don't, need to, you don't need to be choosing from the salad bar every single day. You know, if I'm not just face down in the Bible, then I'm obviously ignoring God. It's not that. It's the rich tapestry of life. But you know what it is that God has called you to keep you healthy. Thankfully, and I think you'll agree with me on this one, it's good that we don't need to destroy anyone to be able to pursue this mission. It's good that we don't need to, to um, drive anyone out. And in fact, it's wonderful that we can be a blessing to those people around us as we pursue this. Not Westboro Baptist Church telling everyone, you know, who's going to help making those judgment calls. We, we can just show God's love in an amazing way, having personally applied it. Good. So, taking up the challenge of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and our neighbours as ourselves. Throughout this whole period of entering the land and conquering the land and subduing the land, they finally settled in it. And the most important thing that God said to them is, you need to have continued relationship with me. I believe that if the Israelites were able to maintain a a continual relationship with God without slipping into idolatry, that the command would have been not to conquer the land and drive out the people, but to go in and, and do that, to go into the land, live amongst the people, continually serving God. But God knew that they were likely to be you know, taken off to other practices. They couldn't be a positive witness to these people because they were the weaker nation. There had been hiccups with Moses and Joshua, but they were basically on track under the leadership of those two amazing patriarchs. So they were kind of you know, in the right direction. But then in direct parallel to this, we see that the most important command in our life is to love God ourselves. So my challenge, therefore, is to identify those things that God is saying, you know what, that is idolatry. That is drawing you away from me. If you want to settle in this land, to settle in a place is to live in it continually. It's more than the victory that you have over a place. It's more than temporary. It's more than an event. It's an enduring thing, isn't it? To settle in a place. Yeah, visiting for a holiday is not the same as settling and living in a place. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where um, these, the, the Israelites had victory, but they failed at the settling. They failed at the living on a day-by-day basis in the land. 
we have those own struggle, uh, those struggles that we can identify, where we can have victory, temporary victories uh, in a moment. Uh, and someone can pray with you, and there can be release and victory over something, and that's fantastic. And then the challenge to come is, now you've got to live in it. Now you've got to live in this. Shameless plug for freedom in Christ. It's a series of victories, totally Bible-based, solid teaching, um, where you can encounter the Holy Spirit and get an opportunity to, uh, to look at those areas of your life that you think, you know what, I need to give this over to God in a new way. But the challenge is once the course finishes, to live in that victory. And that's where the, the testimonies come in of people who have said, you know what, I did that course. I'm well up for doing it again because I'm still not perfect. But this has shifted. This has changed. And I've got an enduring tale of victory in this matter. Graham and I very openly and honestly talked about some struggles that we've had victory over you know, as regards sexual purity and online material and stuff. And for, for me, it's something that I thank, I thank God with everything I am for the victories in that. I know that there is you know, temptation out there. I know that there is continual struggle to be had. We live in a culture which is, you know, which I have not been able to drive out from before me all impurity. I, I can't guarantee that I'll never come into contact you know, with that kind of impurity again. I know that I am called to live in the victory of it on a daily basis. Maybe it's something different for you. Maybe there's something else from the list you know, where the, the temptation to gossip is too much with certain people and you know that God can't it hasn't called you to destroy those people but to destroy that habit from within you and so what can you do about that to live in the victory on a daily basis I'm going to leave that slide there because I, I believe that that is a key s- sequence of events that we need to go through in our, in our own lives when talking about this God requires that we remain pure in a world that is pulling us away from him. Statement of fact. You don't need to action that one. He just requires it. Remain pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know what? You get to see God if you remain pure in heart. Amazing. Motivation. Number two, he has revealed his will to us. Study the word. Pray and say, Father God, what is your will for me in my context, in my situation? And then not just have victory on, on, on an occasion or occasions, but to settle in that land is a real challenge. Can we just take a moment, take a moment just to, just to pray and to say to God, it might be that there's something that you've had victory in and you know that living in it is an ongoing battle to help, to just ask God for help in that. Or it might be a new, a new area, like was ent- identified last week, um, a new area that you need to have victory over and subdue. So let's just take a couple of moments. and Father God, as we, as we think, as we pray, as we ask you, I invite your Holy Spirit amongst us.
May you be talking to us. I thank you for the challenge of living a life of purity in the world. I thank you that our battle is not against the people in this world, but we are called to love and to bless those around us. I thank you that our battle is against the principalities and powers of the uh, the um, against the, the evil one, that we are on the right side in that spiritual battle. Would you please help us? Would you help us to identify those areas over which we can have victory and that we can live in that victory so that we can remain pure?